Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations that demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Logan. And we are seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. Every week, we sit down for soul-provoking conversations with fellow seekers, thought leaders, change makers, and even real people during live coaching sessions as they navigate the hard work it takes to be a human. This is Cheaper Than Therapy. We have news for you all. Yeah, we are so excited to share that as so many of you have asked for us to host more than just one week-long immersive experience, we are bringing another retreat into the fold this year. And this time we're headed to Nosara, Costa Rica, June 3rd through 10th. Yeah. We heard you. We heard you. We're doing more. We're trying. <laughs> this time, though, we're actually bringing in two of our dear friends and colleagues to come along with us and join the party. So we're going to have Ashley Torrent and Millie Murillo there. Um, and honestly, the four of us together, I don't know, our powers mm-hmm. combined, drawing from our collective work in the healing modalities of psychotherapy, coaching, mediumship, astrology, somatic movement, group processing, all the things. We'll be supporting you all in reclaiming every aspect of the most fulfilling life you can possibly live. It's going to be such a transformational week. I'm so excited already. And if you are interested in learning more, you can go to the link in either of our social bios or head over to Vanessa's website at vanessabennett.com. And we have payment plans available for this one as well. Yeah, definitely hit me up on email if you want to know more about that. We are super excited and we hope to see you all there. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. Today's guest is, you know, I love these ones today where they like kind of fall from the sky. (laughs) (laughs) They fall from the sky and then we end up having these conversations where we're like, that was amazing. Right. And um, it feels like we kind of like expand our social 
I don't know if it's social circle, but something with social media where I just feel like we keep expanding into new areas, new people, you know, making this family that we have a little bit bigger. And I just, I really loved the extent to which this conversation went so quickly. We were like, whoa, it's already been an hour. And she was like, we just loved her. She was like our people. We were like, tell us more about your astrological chart because it just felt like such a, um, you know, one of those people that you drop in instantly and you could tell that you would be friends with this person, but she's so unbelievably intelligent in the ways that she approaches things. And I don't know, some serious mic drop moments in there with her. Mic drop moments is perfect, perfect way to describe it. So let me read you her bio. So we're talking today with Dr. Candace Nicole Hargens, and she is an award-winning associate professor of counseling psychology at the University of Kentucky, where she studies sexual wellness and liberation. She's the host of Fuck This System, a sexual liberation podcast and how to love a human, a liberation podcast that asks people with multiple marginalized identities what the world would be like if it loved them. She has published over 50 research articles and has been featured in the Huffington Post, the APA Monitor, Good Housekeeping, Women's Health, Cosmo, the New York Times, all the things. So yeah, Danae said it. She's awesome. She's our people. We talk about sex. We talk about relationships. We talk about gender in relationships, all the things. So buckle up. This is a good one. All right. So Dr. Canis, we are so excited to have you with us. Thanks so much for being here. We've been a little bit geeking out, going through all of your info and looking into what you do a little bit. And we're really excited for this conversation. Um, can the you start enthusiasm off by- is mutual. I love it. Well, can you tell us just a little bit about how you came into doing the work that you you do now? A little bit of background story? Okay, so my origin story. Um, (laughs) um, I have really been interested in sexual wellness and sexual health and like what the body can do way earlier than people might imagine. So like eight or nine year old me with my grandma's Encyclopedia Britannica looking up when I'm going to get boobs, you know, like that. <laughs> that, that yeah. was like, when is it going to happen for me? And it never did. So let's just put that out there. But <laughs> same real same. Right? <laughs> but so I've, I've always been intellectually precocious. And then when I found out through reading Cosmo Mag and stuff like that, that, you know, like sex is a thing. It's like, I'm curious about this. I became the kid in high school who would be teaching my peers about sex ed and stuff like that. Like, uh, this same is girl, same, by the do. way. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that. Yes. This is what you have to do yep. to have the best sex according to Cosmo. You know, like stuff like that. And so then when I became, you know, when I was in college, I knew I wanted to be a psychologist when I was 16, but I took the circuitous route. So when I got to college and grad school and found out you could be a sex therapist and you could study sex research, Mm. I was like, this is a thing. This is a really, really good thing. And I was grateful to be able to do that and uh, learn all the techniques and stuff like that, but also have my own period of reflection on my sexual well-being and development. And so that makes for someone who has a really good time doing the science, I call it hot girl science, and a great time doing the therapy, although I do a lot less therapy now. Do you feel like when you were younger, I mean, was there, how do I word this question? Like, as you were getting into the research component, and you were kind of 
fascinated by it, kind of more like left-brained. I mean, were, were you seeing how it was playing out in your actual life? Like the integration of being, because I know for me, obviously studying psychology, you obviously you weave in your life experience as you're learning about it and you're growing. What's that like when you're kind of studying more of like the sex psychology side? Absolutely the same. Yeah. So finding out the language for what you have experienced, like, oh, attachment, Aha! Uh-huh. Or, you know, like whatever, whatever the thing is, it feels affirming. It feels grounding to have that language and then to be able to study it and to find out what other scientists have said and how it departs from my experience at the intersection of black womanhood or how it aligns with my experience, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay. So I get to ask these research questions that haven't been asked before based on my standpoint. So it's, it's been fun all the way around to get the language for it and then to be able to create the language for it too. Mm. Yeah. I'm so curious about your, I would love to hear some more about your experience growing up as a black woman in the context of your sexuality. And here's why something Vanessa and I were talking about before you hopped on is, um, you know, as a black woman, I feel like my experience is a little bit interesting in that I grew up in a predominantly white environment. I was certainly socialized. Same girl, same as I said. Um, So, well, this is interesting then, right? Because I feel like there are certain ways that I noticed like, we were talking about like me going to the South to visit my cousin and, you know, like being around black kids whenever I was young, but there would be ways that sexuality was talked about differently, or there was like a little bit of a less or a little bit less of like a, I guess shame is the word that's coming up or like a, it was just like the black girls would be a lot more um, like less taboo, maybe, maybe. Yeah. And then also like, you know, some of, I don't know, like some of what you were saying about like how black girls are like just societally seen as a little bit more fast, a little bit more Mm -hmm. sexual. And so I love hearing that you grew up similarly and what you've come to understand about your upbringing versus what might be the upbringing of a black girl who grew up in a more black environment Mm -hmm. and how that impacts um, how we feel about sex. So similar to you growing up in predominantly white spaces, I noticed how I was sexualized or that felt to me at that time, like my only currency for romantic Mm -hmm. involvement because I'm a dark skinned, kinky haired black girl in a predominantly white area. And so they're like, "Mm, you know, you're not exactly who we can take home, but we'd be curious to explore. Saying all that to say, my white girlfriends were very much more explorative around their sexuality than the black girls in the community that I was raised in, even though the black girls were sexualized more. And yes. so we were talking about with my white home girls, like oral and things like that very early on in our high school career. And black girls were like, we don't do that. Like that is not us. And I was like, isn't it us too? Though? <laughs> so that was kind of the bridge between those worlds and and in that bridging process is exhausting in and of itself because I feel like I'm brokering cultural currency both ways and not fitting into any of them really. Yeah, we um there's a Danae and I have talked about this before, but there was a TikTok that I sent to her. This girl was talking about um this woman was talking about uh Disney, right? And she was saying, like, if you look at all of the women of color, girls of color in Disney and how they're portrayed, even in their clothing right? Versus all of the white girls. So like she was saying, she's like, look at Esmeralda because she was just watching that movie. And so she it made her think. And she was like, Esmeralda, like hypersexualized the way that she dresses, the way that she dances, the way that she uses her body. She's like, you would never see Cinderella wearing something like that. You would never yeah. see Snow White wearing something like that. When you look at how much skin they show. 
And then, um, a friend of mine that I sent it to, who, a white woman who has a little girl said, you know, I thought about that exact concept the first time I saw Moana. And I thought if that was a toddler. So for those who haven't seen Moana, when Moana's a baby or a toddler, they show her with just her little kind of swim underwear on and she doesn't have a top on. And she's like, they would never have shown a white toddler without a top on. Wow. I didn't even think of it. And I mean, I haven't seen Moana, but yeah, that makes sense to me though. Just like the hypersexualizing of women of color, girls of color, right. Versus what we see out there with, with white girls. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. But I'm also so curious at what point some of that is internalized. Because as you were speaking, Candace, I was like, yes, that was very much my experience as well. Like you would be sort of the object that was like appealing to sort of like explore, but you certainly like we would never introduce you to mom and dad. But also I feel like there is a little bit of an internalization. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, and but what I was going to say is I think there's a little bit of an internalization on the part of white women, white girls at some point. And I'm curious when you think that happens of like, no, like, don't be a slut. Don't be that, you know, that person that is just about like sex. So maybe it's like when we're younger, we're all a little bit more curious. We're all a little bit more exploratory. But at some point it feels like some of that um, patriarchal shame around sensuality is internalized. um, Well, maybe across the board, but I want to hear what you think. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think it's internalized across the board because that's how patriarchy works. But then there's this added element. So, you know, we're talking about intersectionality. There's this added element of like black women serving as the cautionary comparison tale of like, you know, that they'll typically end up pregnant and end up single moms and all of these like scripts that are very subtle. No one even has to say it out loud, but it's like, don't be like that. And then as you, as you age, as you develop and your proximity to whatever power you're going to have as an adult comes about, you start thinking about that and navigating how you show up your sexual reputation management, if you will, even if the behaviors are the same, like you have to, you have to advocate for your position in this human hierarchy, which is sucky. But I think that is what most of us learn to do early on. And then now maybe in our thirties or forties, we begin divesting from it. Some, some of the younger folks in their twenties are divesting from it now. And I love them for that, but mm-hmm. it took me to like mid thirties. <laughs> I just hit 40 this year where I was like, I don't, I'm buy into that anymore. I reject that actually. Mm-hmm. I like wrote that down, sexual reputation management. And that's, that's fascinating to me because I think what, you know, there's a moment where you start to see some of these things that like nobody talks about societally are socioeconomic things. Like mm-hmm. I remember having friends that their parents were so anti-abortion until it was their daughter and they had the socioeconomic yeah. means to make that oh, yeah. problem go away. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times what would happen in different socioeconomic communities was they didn't have the means to make the problem go away. Right. And so these are the things that nobody's talking about, right? Like, same sexual exploration, same maybe like being a kid and getting yourself into situations yeah. that, you know, life things happen, but there's just a different level of management of mm-hmm. um, of, of what we do to clean it up, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. And what we think it means if we don't, like, if you don't have the means for it, then you don't deserve it. Mm. Yes. Yes. 
I um I was thinking when you were saying that, Danae, how, you know, my mom. So, I mean, I won't go too much into my background, but like single mom, bartender, like I was like the quote unquote bartender's kid by like the richer parents in the area. Mm-hmm. And my mom was the, was like the safe space that all the girls would come to, to talk about sex and sexuality because she was always very open about it. Um, and it was like very, there was no shame. There was no judgment. There was no whatever. And so a lot of these girls who had like the quote unquote rich parents, you know, which rich for my area, um, you know, meanwhile, they couldn't talk to their parents about anything. And then the bartenders, you know, the bartender's mom or kid or whatever is the one who they came to to talk. And it's just really interesting when you were saying that today, I was thinking, oh, isn't that interesting that my mom was the one that people came to, right? And we were like the lower, you know, lower middle class, whatever that is. Yeah. And then using, you know, using people who have lower SES as safe space, you know, like brokering yes. that privilege of like, well, I get to tell you here because if, Stuff hits the fan. I don't know if I can cuss, but if stuff hits the fan, nobody, you know, like, (laughs) then I get to, you get to be a safe space and that's your, your lot in life to like listen to all my woes and like me to dump emotionally on you and all of these things. And then if stuff hits the fan, it's like, ah, I didn't really say that to them. Or, you know, people thinking that you were going to be the one to be in trouble or you were going to be the one who wasn't successful because of a lower SES background and, having to navigate, like being really smart or being really, you know, all of these things and parents having these judgments about you and like, don't hang out with her because when we were all doing the same thing, Hmm. or maybe the wealthier kids were doing a bit more because they had access to like alcohol and all that stuff that couldn't afford to buy. So, yeah. I'm just like sort of fascinated as I'm listening to you. And maybe this is that you work with a younger demographic, um, there's parts of our adolescence or our childhood that I feel like we sort of like not rewrite in our heads, but we forget about, right? Like I'm forgetting about the level of sexual promise. Promiscuity. I can't find the word. I'm like, expressiveness. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Of of my peers, like, you know, that we were all like drunken free for all, like makeout parties. And it was the best actually. Can we just call it what it is? It was the best. Yeah. Had well, so I- much fun. Let me just say that. Thank God I'm not dead, but I had so much fun. Thanks. <laughs> well, but let's go, let's go there for a second, right? Because as you guys are saying, so much fun. I yes, and right. Like I was sort of that girl, like that was very drunk for a large portion of my developmental years. But I didn't enjoy sex. It was completely oh. performative. It was completely mm-hmm. like. How this person is experiencing me? Does oh, this yeah. person like who I think is the cool guy like think I'm hot? Like I'm excited about like him choosing to be with me in this moment. But it was never about my pleasure. It was never like actually about my internal experience. And I find that that is something that as I work with women in their late 30s and 40s, that's something that has continued. Sex mm-hmm. has never actually been about my internalized experience of pleasure it's very performative it's very like i am the object for this other person to um enjoy sex but i'm curious what that brings up for you canvas i'm 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 sitting with that because i feel like it was both and i have largely had good sex and lucky woman 
but you can't. He, give us your tips. There, there was also this. That's great. There was also this pornographic perfectionism I was striving for, yeah. right? So I had to be good at it. I felt like I had to be good at everything, right, mm-hmm. including sex. And so if I was going to have it, it was going to be good for me. But also, nobody was going to be able to say I wasn't good at it. You know, like so there was this me still like navigating what my body looks like. Okay, I run track and I'm a cheerleader, and so that's important. And is it going to be good for me to like, I'm going to have sex with people that I want to have sex with. And I think the, the qualifier that you added there is I didn't drink or, or use substances in high school and or college. And so I was always knowing what I was getting into because I wasn't under the influence of anything, but I was watching other people use the substances, kind of navigate those inhibitions. And so my inhibitions were realizing what I wanted to do. And I think that might have been the difference maker there. So I was still doing the performance of gender, the performance of like sexual prowess, this like internalized idea of what a black girl should be, all of these things. But at the end of the day, I was still very much curious about it and wanted to have the sex and and had and had a good time with it. So I think that that might have been the difference maker for me. So consciousness. <laughs> I was conscious. Yes, I was conscious. I'm making this decision today. <laughs> I am going out the window today. You know, I'm going out this window at this time. At this time, and it was very conscious the whole time. No, but that's a really good point. I mean, I don't think I started having sex not under the influence like that until I was in some of my relationships later on in life, right? Even mm-hmm. in my relationships mm-hmm. when I was younger, it was almost always under the influence. And um, I think what's when I started realizing what you're saying, Danae, the performative aspect of it, I think I started coming into an awareness of that and then an anger and then a rage mm-hmm. around that when I started having sex more consciously and started realizing I wasn't necessarily getting the pleasure that I wanted. I wasn't, you know- Yes. Yes. And I, I think it wasn't until I started having sex consciously that I started being like, wait a second, maybe I'm not having as much fun as I thought I was because I was always drunk or high when I was having sex when I was younger. Um, so that's a really good point. I never thought about it like that. Yeah. What I think is interesting though, and I, I think this is a part of, um, you know, what my progression and what I really talk to women a lot about sexually, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this is so much of why I think and you, you spoke to this, we do that is because it lowers the inhibitions yeah. and it's not as vulnerable, right? Yes. And so I think there's such a normalized sense of, um, and I've come to the point where like, I, I sort of connect sex and spirituality. So mm. like, they're so intertwined for me that it's like, this is like an experience of transcendence. This is us like connecting um, to another like spiritual being in the space of union through sex. So I don't think sex is casual for me anymore. Like I don't, I don't hold it that way, but I'm saying that to say, I think so often we have societally normalized physical intimacy without a lot of emotional intimacy. And I don't feel emotionally safe with this person, but I will allow them to have access to my body in a very intimate way. And I think there's a disconnect that often comes with that, um, that can feel really sort of self-abandoning or dishonoring of self in a way that I feel like we don't talk about a lot. It's like, you know, I love what you're saying because you were young and able to be that conscious. But I think a lot of what we as women 
were taught in terms of modern feminism was like, we can have sex just like men with like, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't matter. We can have sex with no as feeling. many people as we want and feel nothing. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't actually like the truth of mm-hmm. what it felt like. Um, and there wasn't a lot of emotional safety in that a lot of times. And so I think it was a little bit of gaslighting ourselves on a lot of levels. You know what I mean? That hits because a lot of the generation under us are now doing these videos. I'm seeing a lot of them on YouTube around like, sex positivity was a sham. You know, they were like, we thought it was going to be this and sexual liberation was going to be this. And you just, you just tied those knots for me where maybe the way the approach to sex positivity or the way it was sold was the the marketing was terrible. And it wasn't, it wasn't like, this is an autonomous, you make the decision, there is vulnerability involved. Do you have the capacity to risk it? Like, you know, what, what is your pleasure? That's what sexual liberation could be or can't, you know, is as opposed to like, how many bodies do I get to experience? Well, and then there's such a disconnect between that messaging that we got as women under the sexual liberation and under, like you were saying, modern feminisms and and then out of the other side of the mouth of like, you know, sex is something we do in marriage and, you know, it's only with people that you love when two people, you know, this idea of like where babies come from, when two people fall in love and they decide to blah, 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 you know, and so you're getting very different messages of what sex and sexuality is and when is it love and when is it not love, mm-hmm. um, which I have actually found and Danae and I are very different in this that I I I actually have always enjoyed casual sex. I mean, I guess enjoyed as much as I could when I was in my 20s and I was drunk a lot, but um there was something very liberating I found yeah. in that. And it didn't always need to be in relationship for me. I didn't always need to feel super connected. For me, sometimes I could just be like, you hot. <laughs> like, I want to do this, you know. And I think sometimes the messaging that we get around like when two people fall in love, this is what they do. Um can then also in a way almost be shaming of, yeah, but I own this and I want to do this and he wants to do this or she wants to do this and we're both consenting adults. And so why not have fun and have pleasure and enjoy each other? Um, and I, I do feel like if you're going into it consciously, you can still enjoy casual sex as like there's a spiritual component to it. Um, and this other being and, and I are sharing in this amazing union. And then maybe that's it. Like that's all we were meant to kind of come together and do. But that shaming around like you only do those people you love. Um, mm. I don't know. I think that that can be really also harmful and detrimental when, when people are experimenting and in that age. Because it kind of connects to mononormativity and like this, mm-hmm. this privilege you get from partnering. Yes. And so yes. it's like, you're really only worth anything if somebody chooses you. 100%. You know, and yeah. so it's like, we might be choosing each other for this moment, sharing the sexual experience, yes. and that is liberating and it's fun and it's enjoyable and it's good. Yeah. And we might not choose each other for romantic involvement or commitment or all of these things. And for me, it, it was really tough to parse that out in my 20s because I was so invested in elitism. And in all the ways elitism can show up. And it was like, so I need to be chosen by one of these guys for commitment, even though I just really kind of want to have sex with him. He's not my type intellectually, like he doesn't do it for me. But the status involved with being chosen by him is valuable to me at this juncture. And so in addition to the sex I want to have, I also have to now act like a really good girlfriend, like I don't want to do that. You know, like that's the part I did not want to do that I did or or I felt yes. like it was going to it was going to buy me it was going to purchase me something that I was looking to get at that time. 
You just gave me some ahas around that. For <laughs> sure. Like if I didn't want that, and I was very aware that I didn't want that, but I almost forced myself into a space of pretending that I wanted that because there is, there's an elitism in that. Him choosing me to have this amazing sexual experience for some reason couldn't have been enough. He had to then also choose me to want to be partnered because for some reason that meant more when in actuality it didn't really, because I didn't even really want Well, that. you're talking about patriarchy and sexism, right? And like devaluing women who can be chosen in one way and not the other way. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, there's a high, like, this is who, these are the wives and yes. these are the girlfriends and these are the sluts. And it's like, well, and what I think is interesting though, and what I hear and what you're saying that is so brilliant is that I don't think this, that there's like an equation of like feeling safe is not the same thing as necessarily needing to be chosen for a partnership. And mm. I think that sometimes where we shame ourselves as women is that if I want to feel a level of emotional safety, some yes. of that is biological because some mm-hmm. of us, and this isn't conscious, mm-hmm. but like we have that awareness that like, if I were to get pregnant, there is a different level of responsibility. Some of these things are the things that um, like, I just feel like we've been shamed for sometimes like when women will be like, no, I can have sex with whoever. And then something happens. And like, this might've started out as casual sex mm-hmm. or friends with benefits or situations. Catching feelings is like sharing. I feel needy. I feel shamed. And it's like, no, there's a difference sometimes in like what comes up for us once we come into that level of intimacy. And I also like, don't want any women listening to this to sort of continue to perpetuate that level of shame. If that's not how you feel once things get started, because I feel like that is another way that society mm-hmm. has gaslit women for. Cause we can evolve and our needs can shift and that's yeah. normal. And the fact that we even call it, ca- so I have a paper on this, right? My, one of my mentees co-authored this with me called catching feelings because the participants in the study were talking about how they navigate intimacy through like a disease model. Yeah. I'm like, Oh no, what the heck? So they're like, you know, I want to have a sexual experience, but I don't want to catch feelings. So I'm not going to call this person for three days. And like all these little strategies for, it's like, you have emotions because you are a human being and they can evolve. And maybe you didn't want this and now you do. And it's okay to have needs and that it's okay to have needs. I don't know about y'all, but being raised by um, really smart and strong women, that was not the message I got. Like, it is not okay to have needs. It's not okay to expect other people to take care of your needs. So I was listening to y'all's episode about that, that type of vulnerability. And I was like, Ooh, this gets at this something for me. (laughs) It's like be wanting to be needed and needing and all of that stuff. And I was like, Ooh, this gets at something for me. But I'm just now at the point where like my husband and I have had this conversation in the past few years where he's like, ask me for the small things. Hmm. Like you don't even ask me for the small things. He was like, it's not that I need to be needed, but you need the practice because you will take ownership of a whole project or an experience or all of these things and be tired and resentful and wiped out. You have needs because you're a human. Ask me, like have that conversation with me. And I was like, I don't need it. Okay. Shush. Stop looking at me like that. <laughs> right. I don't have needs. <laughs> You're oh, right. Just... It's such a like complex animal because so many of us as women, and this is from my perspective, the ways that we've been shamed out of our feminine and don't be needy and like don't, you know, be the cool girl. Don't be the girl who's like all like clingy and all of the things. But like I still 
will have like a visceral response to being needy or even like I struggle with um, the term having needs. It's something my therapist I go back and forth about constantly. Um, but that I have really framed it in the context of desires because it feels more digestible to me a lot of times. And I think that even having desires as women, desires to like not just sexually, but like desires to be held, desires yes. to be able to soften into someone, desires to be able to um, to trust, you know, the masculine mm-hmm. or the man if we're speaking heteronormatively. But um, yeah, I, I'm curious to hear, you know, you talk a lot about like gender roles and sort mm-hmm. of like challenging some of these ideas. And I'd love to hear you talk more about that because I think, well, let, let, let me just hear your thoughts on like sort of redefining what we are classifying in terms of gender roles and sex. Yeah. I think every, every human being has desires mm-hmm. and we get gendered and coded for what desires we're allowed to articulate and which ones we are not. And so then these ideas of like real men or like, a specific type of masculinity or real women or a specific type of femininity are the templates and anything you do outside of that, whether or not we've divested from it intellectually is still sanctioned socially. So then who you have access to as partners is coded along these lines and what things you're allowed to express and with whom around your desires, like the, even the way you ask for what you want um, the the way you communicate your desires, all of these things have this gendered, sexist, heteronormative coding around them. Will you speak and a little so, bit more about that? Like give examples, because that's really interesting yes. to me. I've never thought about even just like the desires or the needs that we're allowed to have. And then even in the way we communicate them. Can you speak more about that? Yeah. Like you're, and so there's, there's an intersection of race and class around this too. So I don't want to yep. leave all these pieces out. Right. But so what I get coded as a, I get coded as um, androgynous based on the way I look. And so people don't expect me to want softness or to be coddled or held. And people don't make room for that most of the time. And so when my husband's like, ask for that, I'm like, why would I ask for something that people don't think I expect or, you know, should have? Or like, why would I, just, why? I've learned to give it to myself. Because, you know, because of all of that coding, all of that, like there's a specific way black women are gendered around that black women who like me are gendered. And so when I recognize that I have those needs and that I'm trying to take care of all of them myself, which isn't humanly possible because we're we're collective. When I ask them, I feel incredibly vulnerable and I also might still be socially sanctioned. Well, you're a strong black woman. You need to act like this and be like this. And you shouldn't depend on a man for anything and all. And I'm like, but actually I would like to in, in this particular situation. And so I think those, those pieces can get into it. So there are ways that in my community, based on being a black girl who grew up in predominantly white areas and a low SES family, all of these intersections, it's like, you really don't get to have any needs and your responsibilities to take care of everyone else. Yes. Yes. And the men in my life who grew up in similar things are like, we don't really have very high expectations of you. So whatever you do is going to be regaled. (laughs) You, you made it. Yeah. Promising. It's amazing. But I think that looks different when you're white. I think that looks different, you know, like, like the ideas of masculinity are based on like a white head patriarchal norm. And so it's like, 
for white men. I had this conversation on another podcast. He was like, I'm supposed to have this amount of money. I'm supposed to work. I'm supposed to be strong and have like maybe a few friends, but we shouldn't be that emotionally close to each other. And, you know, I'm supposed to be tough. And, you know, these are the, the, the tasks that I have in the household. And he was like, you know, I might want more emotional intimacy than people give me access to. Mm-hmm. And if I ask for it from my friends, my male friends in particular, I am going to be shamed. Yeah. Yeah. So those are some of the examples. Yeah. Even breaking it down to like the tasks that we have in the household. Right. I mean, when you think about it like that and like what what you're actually socialized to believe and others are socialized to believe are your responsibility, what you should want, what you shouldn't want, what you're allowed to have, what you're not allowed to have. That's just so fascinating. I'm thinking about how like my my point of overwhelm consistently, whether it's like personal life, friend life, work life is always getting really overwhelmed with the production aspect, like producing all the things. So like the details and the execution and like juggling all the balls and spinning all the plates. And I'm good at it because I've had to be, but I hate it more than anything. And it's the thing that sends me into panic, overwhelm, frustration, resentment. I mean, all the things that I don't want to be, those are the, that's what sends me to there, to that place. And as you were saying that just clicked for me, like there's something about also that that's just been expected of me my whole life. Like this is what you do, right? This is what you should do. This is what you should Mm -hmm. be good at. So you don't get to say you don't want to, right? Or that you can't. Um, it's just what you do and it's been coded into us. And that is just like, like just, I don't know, there's something in that that just clicked for me because even outside of sex, just the way you show up in society has been coded into, um, based on, to your point, like race, socioeconomic status, like all these things. Yeah. So interesting. I had the example that I shared with y'all. So my husband is a chef and he's the person who cooks. And people are like, oh, you must be lucky. That is amazing. And I'm like, it is. I love it. Don't get me wrong. But if I were the person who were the chef and who cooked, nobody would be like, look at this. Well, maybe some people in the manosphere would be like, it's rare to find a woman who cooks these days. But, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) but people wouldn't be like my, my grandma's generation would work hours and hours in factories and then still make. And I'm like, how did you survive that? How did you survive making meals for people when you get home? I don't have energy for any of this. And so, you know, those expectations, mm-hmm. we st- we're still playing with those gender roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting because for me, there's um, a part of what is, you know, carried forward from childhood is the codependency piece. Because mm-hmm. yes, we might've gotten messaging in positive reinforcement when we took on tasks or not being needy and like being able to be... Um, the child that was able to take care of things ourselves. And so there was positive reinforcement and that was what was internalized. But then what that carries into in adulthood from my perspective is a lot of times the way I maintain attachments, the way that I um, stay close to other people is by being pleasing, by doing Mm -hmm. these tasks, Mm -hmm. but then I carry resentment. And so for me, what I see so often with couples is when someone has like, been in the space of attempting to meet the needs of others for so long, and they've been carrying resentment for so long, the transition into I can have needs or I get to have needs doesn't sound like a need. It sounds like a demand and it sounds like a demand with resentment. And Mm -hmm. so for me, that's a little bit why with couples, especially I play in the realm of desires because it's like, I'm still responsible for the way that I'm showing up and whether or not someone has the capacity to meet me and they Mm. might not always in this moment. Right. 
but that's information for me, right? Like I can make a request, but a lot of times it's like, I'm demanding this need. I'm demanding this need be met right now. And evaluating you based on your capacity to give me that, to meet that Mm -hmm. demand. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like there's just such an adversarial energy that often comes into our relationships when it's like, no, I need my needs to be met. And so it's like the pendulum swings so far from I don't get to have any needs to I am demanding my needs be met. And I'm feeling a whole lot of resentment about the fact that I might not be having my needs met by this particular person in this particular way. You know what I Because mean? that's another vulnerability avoidance strategy. So if I yeah. pop off on you about not meeting needs, I don't have to express. I don't have to ask. Now I'm demanding because that feels much less vulnerable than asking and giving somebody the ability to consent or not. That's why it's for me, it's tied to to sexuality and how we express ourselves in so many ways. Because if you like you said, if you express a desire for something and then you leave breathing room for a person to consent or not, you got to wait and listen to what they're navigating or negotiating as they decide whether they can consent. And then you've got to tolerate that rejection or whatever emotion comes up. And it's not actual rejection, but you're feeling whatever you're feeling around it. But if you demand, it's like you failed because you didn't meet my need. That's Ooh. that's like really easy. That was just like one of those like mic drops. Yes. <laughs> like I, I am obsessed with what oh, you I'm just speaking what I live. So I know. <laughs> I, I mean, shit. Speaking I'm my like, own I'm shit. Big. But you know, what's so interesting about that, because Danae and I have talked recently about this. We both have clients like this and like personal experiences and all these things around, you know, it's just this like, uh, this cultural messaging around like the, the frigid woman and like, she never wants to have sex. And the guy always wants to have sex. And so many of my couples, right. It's like the man's like, well, pillars, you know, what was me? She never wants to have sex with me. And this is dance and this back and forth. Right. And what you're saying is so interesting because so often the men that I, I, again, heteronormatively, I watch the men like act out or pout or, um, tantrum or whatever, right. That looks like, um, which then obviously pushes the partner away even more, but it's, that doesn't feel vulnerable, right? Like that feels Mm -hmm. like a demand, um, versus actually communicating what the authentic vulnerable desire is, which is like to connect to, you know, be seen by you to, uh, be physically close to you, just that desire to feel desired. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, mm-hmm. Yeah. That is. Yep. That's it right there. And so how then, do you then? They got the power of patriarchy this? around it. Where yes. They got the power of patriarchy around it when they're like, see, she's not fitting the mold. So she's not good enough as a girlfriend or a wife because she's not fitting that mold. So you can the power of patriarchy allows you to defend against your emotional vulnerability. Yeah, it's just oh, I'm like so many light bulbs as you're speaking, because mm-hmm. it's like. The way that patriarchy has pinned us against one another in mm-hmm. relationships. So it's so adversarial because so often to the point that Vanessa's making, there's like the vulnerability in longing to connect, longing to be desired by my partner. Um, but then there's also like the, the part that we don't talk about is like the only hand women, if we're speaking heteronormatively, a lot of times have to play is withholding sex because it becomes like the one thing that I can weaponize and you know, this is like where my power is. I hold, I hold the card to sex and that's sort of like historically been the case, but, um, yeah, it's just like, we're in this like power struggle Mm -hmm. instead of that space of vulnerability with one another. 
so Candace, how would you say, like, how do we play then with gender roles in a way that enriches our sex life? Mm -hmm. I think we're having a good conversation in that direction because we're identifying what we've been taught. Yeah. And so I always start with that step for folks because we don't often interrogate it. We just kind of swam in that water for however long we've been alive. And now it's time to write it down, make it plain. Like, what have you been taught about what it means to be a real woman or a real man if we're talking about heteronormative or even if we're talking about being a person that's trans or gender expansive, there are codes still like this is what it means to be a good trans person or a good trans man. So writing down what you were taught, all the messages. And if you can find out, like if you can even go further and figure out who said it or where you heard it from, that gives you a bit more to play with. But even if you can't, these are the messages I've been socialized into. And then circling the ones that actually vibe for you so that you know, like there's nothing wrong with even these traditional ways of doing gender or expansive ways of doing gender if you consent into them. Like if they really work for the way, like your values, if they're really value congruent, basically. So writing down that, and then there may be some in the real man category that work well for you, even if you don't identify as a man. So figuring out like these are the attributes that have been ascribed to these specific genders. These are the attributes that are really congruent with who I am, who I know myself to be that really work for me, that are value congruent. And then if you're partnered, you can talk about why they matter with your partner. And if not, you can journal about that or talk with friends or your therapist about this is what I learned. These are the parts that really resonate for me. And these are the parts that I'm still adopting, even though they suck. Like they just don't work for me at all. Figuring out how I get my needs met or realize my desires or experience my gender or my partnering with someone when they can't, they don't have the capacity to, to be that type of man or woman that I think they should have been. You know, how do I how do I deal with that? Because that opening up is such a practice where if you're doing it with someone you're engaging with sexually, now you're seeing each other. You're also knowing what standards you've been holding each other to. And if you're in a good place, you get to forgive each other around that and connect in that way. I love that. And I love the idea of holding it as something that is a continuous dialogue, because I think there's so many ways that yes. a patriarchal structure also conditions us to hold things in a very linear way. Like we have a problem with sex and we are going to solve it. And this is what it is. And because we've like laid out the guidelines and this is how we have sex and it's every single time and you're breaking the rules. And um, I think it's, you're breaking the rules is it like people hate you breaking the rules. (laughs) 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 Yeah. And it's, can it be alive? Can it be, um, you know, because I think there's so much, like in the um, erotic realm of just like continuously being present with what is and mm-hmm. like the fluidity of allowing ourselves to shift yes. and change. And even some of what you're saying about gender roles, I think like today, I feel like being in the more masculine energetic with my partner, if I'm a core feminine woman, but that do- that may not be the case tomorrow. I might want to be ravished by yes. yes. Can all of it be welcome? Right? Can all yes. of it be welcome? And can you, check in with each other. So setting time points, whatever works for you and your schedule and your, you know, like let's check in with each other. Cause if we're going to allow each other to evolve in this relationship, we've got to recognize that we're not going to be the same. We can't, we're not going to be static. So I'm not Candace as 
mom to a toddler boy is not Candace as pre-children. And so if in within the confines of my marriage, that was the expectation that my libido would be the same, that my energy would be the same, that my interest would be the same. Ooh, you got another thing coming, you know? Yeah. So let's talk about yeah. how it's evolving. Yeah. Because, mm. you know, and I think that this is what so many couples struggle with is that we are meant to continuously evolve and change. And the person that I married is not going to, you know, whatever my partnership um, model is, is not going to be the person that I'm with, you know, 10 years from now. And I think that if we stay in a partnership with someone for a very long time, we will be in partnership with several different people because we are mm-hmm. meant to change. But I think we expect that children from age zero to 18 are going to change, but somehow societally, we think that stops at 18 and we're just like, nope, we're grown now. This is the person I'm going to be. And it's like, not even a little bit, like I'm a completely different human being than I was in my twenties. But if we're in partnership with someone we have to allow space for that. We have to say, no, like we're, we're going to continue to change. Um, how can we be present with the person that I'm with right now? Mm. Somebody said, I don't know who said it. So if it was you, you know, attribute it to yourself, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was me. I was just going to say that. They said, they said that women partner expecting and hoping that their person will change and men partner hoping that the person never changes. And I don't know that I don't, you know, I don't want to essentialize gender in that way. But if that vibes for you, we might consider why, why we think that's the case. Well, I mean, I don't know if it was me that said it when you heard it, but I do (laughs) think that I speak to that um, quite often. And because I, I study masculine and feminine energetics quite a bit and for the feminine, if we're speaking like a core feminine, that is expansion, that is aliveness, mm. that is continuous free flowing energy that is not static. Um, the masculine is structure, the masculine is, you know, the containment, the solid base of what things are. And so I think a lot of times for core masculine men, what makes sense is I know what I'm going to get. I married this woman. This should be what it is. Why does she keep asking me to evolve and read books with her? Like, I just want to like sit here and be in the space of knowing what this is going to be. Just tell me how to do it and I'll do it. Right. And that makes sense. But for women, a lot of times it's just the space of like, no, we're like in the constant state of expansion. And I, I am turned on by when my man is growing and, um, you know, showing me something new that he is capable of. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think sometimes that can feel a little bit threatening to um, men. And some of that is the way that they're socialized to like, yeah, I was just going to say something that like, I want to add on to what you're saying today and say too, I do think that the patriarchal structure that we live in has, because it's stripped so much of the feminine uh, from the men in our lives, right? Or just in society. I do think that women, there is this message that women get that we are the emotional saviors of the men in our lives. So like if men are the physical saviors, women are the emotional saviors. And there is an expectation that if I'm good enough for him and he marries me, that he's going to find himself. He's going to potentially expand. He's going to learn. He's going to become more emotional. He's going to somehow quote unquote fix all of these problems and these issues that the patriarchy has like done to to him. Um, and, and obviously that one person cannot, you know, undo all of, uh, generations and centuries of patriarchal messaging. Um, but then I think what happens is you see these women then say like, Oh, I'm not good enough. Right. Like I'm not enough for you to want to change. Uh, because I think we put that on our own shoulders. I think we think that we are good enough to change our men. Um, I don't know. Something I've been thinking about. And don't let it be true as a therapist. (laughs) 
They're like, this is what I was trained in. So I should definitely be able to change it. <laughs> well, and, and I think that there's, there's power in like, if, if I'm a man and speaking in the context of the way that we're talking about it, can I be in the space of acceptance of someone else continuously being, you know, evolving and changing and that that is in no way a representation of my ineptitude or that I am not enough. But also, like, how do we as women take responsibility for, like, I'm not actually seeing and loving the person in front of me if I'm seeing them in the context of the potential for who they could be. If I can just get in here and fix some things and move it around, like, that's not love for that person. That's like me with a a, um, projection of who I think that this person should be in the future that I'm falling in love with, right? All the things, ladies. All the things. I mean... (laughs) I love this conversation with you, Candace. I feel like we could keep you forever. I'm like, oh, that went really fast. Right. I'm sitting here like, ooh, checking my own stuff as we're talking about this. I mean, that's real. Like, I'm going to go back and listen to like, you ooh. Said. That's what happens, I guess, when you get three three therapists on the line together. Yes. <laughs> oh, shit. That, that mic drop moment. I got to go back and listen and dissect that a little bit. Um but it, let's get on to our lightning round. So, um, Candace, we have questions that we ask all of our guests at the end. And the first one is, who have been your greatest teachers, mentors, influences, whether they're people that you've known along your path or people who you've just been really impacted by their work? Oh, so people that I know, my grandmother, my maternal and paternal, but especially my paternal grandmother, my son is probably one of my best teachers. And for people that I haven't had a chance to meet, so Maya Angelou, um, Alice Walker, Audre Lord. So when I think about Maya Angelou, like writing about being a whore, like I love that for some reason. And just being like, and Pulitzer Prize winning. I love that. <laughs> so much for some reason but being able to name that part of her journey in all of these pieces like that taught me something about being a fast black girl um and then audrey lord and her uses of the erotic and like inviting us into self-preservation through self-care like that love it and alice walker for giving me womanism and just that as a as a model and a way of being in the world so those are the folks that have taught me quite a bit I love how we have so many of the same yeah. heroes, right? Like my kind of people. <laughs> so the, the idea of flow, right? What is this thing for you that you can find yourself doing and you blink your eyes and an entire day has gone by? Like, what is flow for you? I feel like I've been so out of flow mm. in the past few years. I'm feeling really distracted. And so a lot uh, outside of flow in ways that I used to be, but like writing used to be my thing. I, I could just write a story or read a story, reading and writing. Those used to be things that I could just lose a day and be learning something new. But now it feels really disjointed and choppy. So that was a good reminder. Maybe can I name, can I name early motherhood as just a state of permanent distraction? I think that makes <laughs> sense. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like my my spidey sense is always trying to like, are you safe somewhere in the world? That's a part of it for sure. But what do I, I have invited do? some? <laughs> right. I have invited yeah. distractions too, though, for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, finding flow as a mother, I think, is it's like a whole 
a whole separate conversation. Like, how do we? Everybody wants to teach that class. I will go. Yeah, seriously. Um, and what breaks your heart? Oh. Like seeing, seeing the light go out. So I used to be a high school teacher for a little while, seeing the light go out or be dimmed in like teenagers eyes, like that point where the world has fucked them over. And it's like, they don't look like they're coming back from it. Mm. It's like that just on a soul level, I only taught for three years. Like I really couldn't take it. And I work with people who've had deep trauma therapeutically and everything, but being in space with them five days a week and watching that process happen, it was just heartbreaking for me. So I think seeing that happen to anyone, but in particular for like black kids growing up in rural and urban areas, like and watching that moment happen, it makes me sick to my stomach and it breaks my heart. Yeah, I just felt that in my body. (laughs) And then here's the last one. It's the doozy. What's your favorite food? Mm. I love food so much. <laughs> I really, really love it. <laughs> it's an erotic experience. <laughs> yes. It is an erotic experience. experience. It is. <laughs> so good. It, um, exactly it. Like everybody listening, <laughs> food is an erotic experience. Thank oh, my goodness. That. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the desserts do it, especially... Oh. Um, there's this restaurant in Atlanta called Poor Calvin's and they have like a green tea pound cake with caramel and like a bourbon peach ice cream. And it's, it's an orgasmic. It is so good. Anybody who's ever watched me eat knows that. Do you have any Taurus in your chart? Do you know? Do I have any what? Taurus. Oh, I thought you said Taurus. <laughs> oh, uh, that's what I thought you said too. I'm like, wait a minute. Taurus. I don't know. How would I know that? I'm a Capricorn. But how would I know? My oh, husband's a Taurus. So much is becoming yeah. clear. But we need to know like, where so Taurus is. I feel yeah. like how, do, how, do I, how do I find <laughs> out? Send us, um, send us your birthday and where you were born. <laughs> okay. I'll send you an app and you can send us your, your I, I want to know now. So, yeah. We're in the people. I get along very well with Tauruses and Virgos. So. Of course you do. You're yeah, of course side, you do. But, yeah. Oh, there we go. Okay. I and also, know. like, there's salty and sweet people. And I'm starting to understand that there's a very similar, like, over-functioner, under-functioner. That's fascinating. I love that. I like the salty-sweet combo, though. It's like the caramel oh, with the salt. <laughs> I'm the combo all the way. It's the combo for me. Caramel is my favorite flavor. There you go. It's got the salty and the sweet in one. Yes. Amazing combination. Butterscotch, caramel, toffee. Okay. Please send me the (laughs) link. We will send that to you. (laughs) We should start doing this with all of our guests. Like how, like how Jung used to go through the chart of all of his, of all of his yes. It's like, we should do this we with our guests. Beforehand. Love it. Basically, this is basically if Jung had a podcast. So yes, yeah. do it. That's true. <laughs> oh my gosh. Hey, Kate, light bulb. You're, you're the origination point of this idea. Yes. That's so good, V. Yeah. Light bulb. From now on. And we're going to get yours so we can like talk about it. That's the fifth question. <laughs> I love this. Love it. This idea. All right. Well, Candace, we just, you are an absolute joy. This has been such a fun conversation. I feel like we just scratched the surface, but thank you so much for being here and for the work that you're doing and for these break drop moments. Thank you for having me. This has been one of the best times I've had in a while. So thanks. Where can our uh, listeners find you? Where can they find you on all the things? 
Oh, y'all can find me on my website, drcandicenicole.com and on YouTube at Dr. Candace Nicole, Instagram. I'm more there than anywhere at Dr. Candace Nicole. There's a period after DR. Sometimes I'm on Facebook, rarely on Twitter. So, you know, if you want, if the places I want to be found, <laughs> YouTube and Instagram. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. This was so much fun. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share it with a friend, subscribe, and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us more, find us on Instagram at Cheaper Than Therapy, the podcast. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.